Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk and thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Andre Ostel, who is a licensed psychologist. So Dr. Dre, I had to throw that in there. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So can you introduce yourself a little bit about your background and what you do? My name is Dr. Ostel or Andre, as you mentioned. Um, so I am a clinical psychologist. I got my doctorate in clinical psychology from John F. Kennedy University in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, but before that, I did my bachelor's at the University of Missouri, and then I did my master's in sports psychology at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Awesome. Awesome. And so you just kind of gave us a little uh, background about your educational journey. Can you talk about your journey to becoming a psychologist? Why did you want to be a psychologist? You know, I don't know anything you want to share about that journey. All right. So um, I, I knew I wanted to study psychology in the fourth grade because a friend of mine asked me, I remember we were playing at my house and she was like, what do you want to study? We go to college. And I was like, psychology and she goes I think that would be a good fit because I was just <laughs> always a person who was like easy to talk to yeah. and so I stuck with it something some people say a lot about you know foresight and planning goes a long way and I, I guess so um and I was always just like a, that inquisitive little kid mm -hmm. that person who even adults they would love to just talk to for some reason I'm like I'm eight I don't think you should be telling me this stuff <laughs> um but just people really felt comfortable talking to me um uh, I think one of the things that interested me in psychology is I have an identical twin brother who has cerebral palsy. And so oh, kind wow. of not really like understanding what that meant when I was younger, I think kind of piqued my interest. And then I think also uh, because he's nonverbal because of his cerebral palsy, there's a certain level of empathy I kind of had mm -hmm. um, as a kid that I think most kids probably didn't have. And that just continued to develop. So I could always think about other people's perspectives really, really easily. And other people would be like, I didn't think about it that way. Or if mm -hmm. I'm talking to them about something, they're like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like how I experienced this thing. How did you know that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just thought about it. Like, what would it be like in that situation? <laughs> uh, came to my and, brain. You know, so, right, right. And so it was kind of like, um, you know, some things out of there that kind of taught me how to take other people's perspectives and just go from there. Um, and then... So I carried that through all the way through undergrad. Um, and then I became interested in sports psychology in college. So I played football for two years in uh, uh, in college. So I transferred from one school to another, played another year, but then I had to stop playing. And unfortunately, during undergrad, a friend, a high school teammate of mine who came up there to play ended up passing during conditioning. So seeing the wow. impact of that trauma on 
mutual friends and, uh, you know, his current teammates, my former teammates in college and just seeing, you know, they're young adults. This is the first experience that some of them have had with death, as well as it being like a person close to their age so that you could see a lot of the impact of the trauma. And, you know, I'm like, here I am 18, 19. And I'm like, I'm studying psychology. I could tell something's going on, but I don't really know what, because, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I learned about this in my textbook type of thing. And, you know, just seeing like being in that place, of a little bit of helplessness of like, how do you help someone when you don't quite know what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then some of them being um, young black men, they weren't very comfortable with the idea of going to therapy for historical reasons, their own personal reasons. And I think the aspect of not really trusting, um, you know, trusting health professionals, especially if they don't look like them, there's not that Absolutely. rapport sometimes that could be helpful in just getting them in the door. Um, and so, you know, you had some guys who they were the first in their family to go to college and they had a full ride. And because of the grief and the trauma, they didn't know how to cope with that. And so then they stopped going to class. Some start self-medicating. Uh, one particular uh, friend of mine, he had um, the onset of schizophrenia at that time. And then you had, he had this loss. And so that's a lot to try to manage uh, for a young adult. And so then people make certain decisions or decisions get made. And now they're out of school and what happens from there, you know, and it, it, that was a difficult thing to see. And, you know, you lose touch with people because of the fact that they didn't know how to really navigate dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. So first, because I was taking notes, identical mm-hmm. twin brother. That's really cool. <laughs> um, but I, I work in a hospital. So hearing you talk mm-hmm. about um, CP and yeah, the impact that's something obviously I do in my work talking with families, children, teens about the impact of chronic medical illnesses, not only on the individual experiencing it, but, mm-hmm. but the family. Um, mm-hmm. and then I appreciate you so much for sharing your experience, the loss of, um, teammate and the impact of trauma. And we're, mm-hmm. we'll talk about sports psychology, but I've, definitely just from witnessing watching sports i grew up mm-hmm. in a household that we watched a lot of football mm-hmm. things like that like you men you just are tough you tough things out you get a really bad injury we'll pause the game for a couple minutes get the guy mm-hmm. off the field go back like nothing was mm-hmm. i mean we saw demar hamlin like that mm-hmm. whole experience um recently mm-hmm. So the fact that you were able to kind of see those things and that continue mm-hmm. to propel you, or I guess affirm what you wanted to mm-hmm. do the whole time. Yeah, I think propel is a good word. I I, I tell people like there were because getting into psychology, it, unless you are you kind of know what to expect because you have like a family member, or like close family friend that can tell you what to expect. It's a weird process to try to get in, and my friends that are medical doctors get upset about this when I say I'm like. But it's true. If getting into the field of psychology, especially if you want to do a PhD, is more difficult than med school because usually the PhD program is only taking three people, maybe five at the most a year out of the thousands of people who get a psych degree. And it's Mm -hmm. like you go into some of these meetings and don't let it be a psychoanalytic person on the panel because they're like, I didn't like the way you drank your coffee. I don't think you're a good fit for this program. You're like, what? (laughs) He's like, why are you testing me? (laughs) Yeah. 
I, so as somebody with a PhD in clinical psychology and works in a hospital, that is something mm-hmm. I don't bring up to like, you know, the residents and things like that. But I do keep that stat in mind. I don't remember the acceptance rate in medical school, but for clinical psychology, PhD programs, it's about 12%, like across the mm-hmm. board. And yeah, my cohort was six. So it was like mm-hmm. big. That's a big cohort. cohort. <laughs> I know, but it is usually like four um, mm-hmm. people. And so, yeah, but also we do different things, but it it is, it is mm-hmm. a, a challenge. And yeah, if you don't have any guidance, you're just mm-hmm. kind of like, this program looks good. Let me apply. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, wait, I can't, I can't get licensed if I do this program. It's like, no, but if you do this one, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay. And it's like, just even the difference between clinical psych and counseling psych, because mm-hmm. at the end, we can kind of do the same things. And it can be dramatically different training mm-hmm. at times. And even that, and I try to explain to people, I'm like, just Google it. I can't, I don't, I don't want to try to sit down and explain this. <laughs> or or PsyD and PhD. At the end of the day, yeah. we are both psychologists. We both have our doctorate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like over time they are mm-hmm. getting more similar because it used to be very stereotypical. PhD is more research heavy, PsyD, more clinical heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's changing with time. But yeah, you know, which one is going to be a better fit? How do I know what to get? And so mm-hmm. if you don't mm-hmm. have somebody guiding you, it's it's very overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you got your master's in sports psychology. Um, and so I just wanted to talk about that because it's such a cool mm-hmm. and interesting area of psychology. So can you talk about what a sports psychologist is and what the heck they do? <laughs> so it can depend. Then this is where it gets a little sticky at times. So you have the sports psychologists who get their doctorate in sports psychology. Mm-hmm. However, they cannot use the term psychologist unless they're like in an academic setting. And they're just focusing okay. on like the performance enhancement piece typically, or maybe uh, researching like different aspects of sport that uh, occur, like different phenomenons, like, you know, fandom and whatnot, gender differences in sport. Mm-hmm. And then you have the term I use, which is clinical sports psychologist. Because I focus on not just a performance enhancement, I also focus on the clinical factors that could be occurring on the field or off of the field, um, because oftentimes those things aren't discussed. And so, you you know, we talked about injuries. If an athlete has an injury, that could be very traumatic for them Mm -hmm. and they can experience a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, You know, they can experience it. They can develop an adjustment disorder as a result of that. Outside of that. Um, there could be uh, the whole transition. So identity wise, you build an identity of being a college athlete, you go into college and maybe it's not what you're expecting, Mm -hmm. then um, that transition out. So maybe you're not going to be a professional and you're no longer going to be playing this organized sport like you used to, or maybe at all. And that's a tough transition, especially if you haven't built out other aspects of your identity just yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then it's like, well, I have to go find myself and you know, if you're 24, that could be difficult when all your peers kind of know is like, I'm going to go get this job and build my career. Mm-hmm. And they go like, I don't know how to really do a resume because I never had to. That yeah. can be really, really isolating for a lot of people. Um, and so to me, a big thing is um, working from a uh, like a 
working from an integrated perspective. So that way we're, we're able to help athletes deal with different aspects of life that can come up being challenging, whether it's uh, something in their personal life, something in their sport, uh, whatever it may be, we can help them with that transition. We can help them deal with those injuries. Uh, it could be difficulties with relationships because if you're, especially for elite athletes, they're devoting so much time to their training that it does not leave a lot of room for other people and other relationships, mm-hmm. or maybe especially in the case of Olympic athletes, they're, they don't have the finances like they're hoping for to really start to, you know, go through the phase of life of like buying their first car, buying a house or anything like that, because they put so much into training that they don't have a steady income as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And so um, to me, the clinical, I use that term clinical to denote the fact that I can work with an athlete across many different aspects of their experience um, to help them better adjust uh, with whatever they're facing. Um, Or if they just want to focus on performance enhancement, Mm -hmm. that's cool too. We can do that. They have a choice in that. They have those options versus trying to figure out, well, I got to talk to this person about this, but then Mm -hmm. I can't talk to them about this. I got it. And it's like, what do you want to talk about? We can talk about it all. I love that. So first, thank you for highlighting the differences because I didn't know this. And this is why I love having guests on my podcast that have knowledge and expertise in areas that I don't. Um, But it makes a lot of sense hearing you talk about it. Another thing Mm -hmm. I want to highlight that you said was that identity piece and kind Mm -hmm. of merging identity, but also injury. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've I'm a big research nerd and this sports psychology is not an area that I'm well-versed in, but I have read Mm -hmm. um, papers, articles, and talking about when athletes get injuries, especially if it's an injury that Mm -hmm. stops them from being able Mm -hmm. to play and their whole identity from childhood throughout high school, Mm -hmm. college was I am an athlete or I am a football Mm -hmm. player. Not only do you have an injury, which can cause stress, depression, anxiety. You also just lost your whole identity in the in a split mm-hmm. second, basically. Um, and kind of how to deal with that and adjust to that. I mean, and we we see it in the media. You know, um, mm-hmm. individuals get injured; they might then develop substance use problem if they're trying to cope or like Mm. lose all their money because they were never Mm -hmm. taught how to like manage it Mm -hmm. and maybe have gambling or things like that so i don't know that was just what i was thinking of when you were Mm -hmm. sharing all that yeah those are a lot of things especially i think for college athletes because Mm -hmm you know, maybe they come from a background where they didn't have people teach them certain things, or maybe they do. However, they haven't had to actually navigate those experiences just yet. And so now they're in college and it's like, well, I got a flat tire and this is the first time I ever had one. How do I change it? Something as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of universities are trying to do better in that regard of teaching athletes some of these life skills um, and expose them more to um, uh, that whole aspect of transitioning and exploring their identity. So that way it's an easier transition because it does look bad on universities, uh, especially the athletic departments when athletes are, when they don't graduate, um, that looks bad for them. And then of course, even they do graduate where it's like, but they're not doing anything. And um, it's like all these top athletes and it's like, but then when they go on in life, it's like they're not doing well. That doesn't mm-hmm. bowl well for the school. It looks better if they do better in some aspect. Um, and so I think, yeah, just those those little things, it's if 
if they don't know how to cope, they're mm-hmm. probably going to cope in a way that's maladaptive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, yeah. I like, I, I had not considered the, the university perspective, but it makes a lot mm-hmm. of since you have like star college athletes, okay, maybe their goal was never to go on and play professional or maybe it was mm-hmm. and they didn't get it. But yeah. And then if they don't have life skills or don't know, you know, what next step to take, that is going to look mm-hmm. bad on the university. But also, I mean, then the individual, and I was going to say kid, because I think of like 22 year olds, they're still kind of kids, are like mm-hmm. lost. <laughs> And don't like, okay, mm-hmm. I I did high school sports. I did college sports. I was this big college athlete. And now what? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, when it is something terrible happens in a, in the news university or whatever, whatever, mm-hmm. former student athlete. And it's like, ah, and it's like, why are there so many though from that? Yeah. And it's so raises yeah. questions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like anything, I think even such as becoming a psychologist, like, you know, we kind of build our identity. We start to feel comfortable and secure. And our that's because we built that identity to cope with the stressors. And if you all of a sudden take a person out of that role, they have an identity that they can't use. Um, it's not sailing it to different aspects of life. And so that's where that exposure goes a long way. Um, I think that's why it's, you know, you look at like the Hollywood children actors and whatnot is oh, like, yeah. It's kind of, well, there's a reason why they, they don't have, all they know is I'm an actor and I should get this because mm-hmm. this and that. And it's like, well, how do you cope when you don't get what you want and people don't really don't care who you are anymore because you're not that cute little kid from whatever TV show anymore. Yeah. No, it makes makes complete sense. So one mm-hmm. thing you said when you were talking about the various things that sports psychologists mm-hmm. do is help with performance enhancement. So one mm-hmm. question I want to ask is how can a psychologist help athletes enhance mm-hmm. their performance? Because obviously when most of us think of sports and like mm-hmm. performance, they're like, oh, you, you practice, practice mm-hmm. makes you better. So what would a psychologist role be mm-hmm. in that? So um, if from an individual perspective, because there's different routes a person can go. One thing is managing um, anxiety, uh, just even low levels anxiety. A lot of people don't realize that they're carrying a certain level of anxiety. So as psychologists, we know that when people are anxious, because they'll start to smile inappropriately. And it's like, now's not the time to smile. And they're just like, ah. yeah. and you're like, you're anxious. They're like, am I? Oh, God. Yeah. Or e- and even just the internal dialogue when you ask them about their self-talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I, if a person were to say to you, uh, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? What would be your first thought about what they might be experiencing? They keep saying, well, what what if this goes on? Anxiety, because you're you're thinking about all the potential possibilities mm-hmm. of outcomes yeah. that haven't happened yet and may or may not be mm-hmm. based in reality. <laughs> right. And even just that, I've had so many clients, athletes and non-athletes who I'm like, you're anxious. And they're like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, you keep talking about the future and all these weird scenarios that mm-hmm. are becoming less and less possible after a certain point. I was like, that's future-oriented fear. definition of anxiety and they didn't realize that and so like their their anxiety is so significant cognitively that they're not even aware of what's happening physically and so now i got to help them recognize the cognitive piece is like those thoughts when you recognize um i steal it from the uh, tv show scrubs i was like you got a case of the what ifs i was like if you notice the what ifs now pay attention to what's happening in your body 
take some deep breaths or do some muscle relaxation, uh, tech progressive muscle relaxation to get rid of that tension. So that way your fine motor skills are going to be uh, more accurate. They're going to be better because you're not carrying that tension. But some people are more aware of the somatic symptoms. Some people mm-hmm. are more aware of the cognitive symptoms. Um, and if I can just help them identify a couple, then they can be proactive in managing their anxiety. Another big thing is goal setting. Um, Goal setting is a great tool for many aspects of life. When it comes to sports, people tend to use it in a way that's not helpful at all. If anything is kind of counterproductive because they're trying to control the outcome of something. It's like, well, I'm going to goal set to win eight games in the season. It's like you can't control how many games you win. You can have a great performance in eight games and still lose all of them. Mm -hmm. And you know, helping them recognize, like, let me goal set in an adaptive way. Um, uh, let me kind of focus a little bit, maybe on more of the intrinsic goals versus the external goal of getting this championship. And I think that's the part of it where it's like, we're not saying don't aim for the championship. What we're saying mm-hmm. is build your goals more accurately for what you can attain. Because if you're on a team sport, you'd be the best player in the world. If the rest of your team is terrible, you're probably not going to win a championship. And so we got to help you do the best for yourself and your team. Um, And I think that's a big part of helping. I think different sports, the athletes really understand that. Are you playing your best can be a detriment to your team. You know, if your team plays better because you're not doing X, Y, and Z, then you're more likely to get that goal. And there's times where you can take over and be that that elite top athlete and focus on your best performance. Um, regardless of how it impacts the rest of your teammates. And so it's helping them navigate from that aspect of it. Um, and then I mentioned goal setting. I mentioned uh, managing anxiety. Uh, self-talk is a big thing just because athletes mm-hmm. can be very critical. Um, yeah. And not just athletes, anyone who performs, lawyers, a surgeon, you know, no one wants a nervous surgeon, I say. Nope. It's like, especially <laughs> like a brain surgeon. You want someone cool, calm, and collect. Yeah, they're like, ah. I was like, nope, I don't want to hear that sound from a brain surgeon before they come in. <laughs> but how do they manage anxiety uh, mm-hmm. to perform their to the best of their abilities? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so that's a big part of it. I think a general psychologist, a lot of it could just be increasing that awareness of their physical anxiety, their cognitive anxiety, maybe some basic goal settings to help them understand how their approach might be detrimental to them because they're focused on goals that are really outside of what they're capable of controlling or influencing even. Mm -hmm. I love that you highlighted the goal setting and that a lot of the times the goals athletes set are basically out of their control. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we do that a lot just in life. Um, Mm -hmm. I think of, and this is a bad example, but I give it all the time with like weight loss. Like people would be like, my Mm -hmm. goal is to lose X amount of pounds, but the goal is not Mm -hmm. like I'm going to exercise X amount of times per day or Mm -hmm. drink more water. And what I always, I don't work with weight loss, but when I hear that, I say, Mm -hmm. we can't fully control what our body does. We can Mm -hmm. engage in behaviors to help Mm -hmm. an outcome. Just like I think you were saying, like you can be the best athlete. You can focus on your behaviors, your skills, and still not get Mm. the outcome you thought, but you performed your best. You made, you Mm. know, changes, Mm -hmm. uh, improvements since your last performance. And so I just wanted to highlight that again, because I think that is something we all do when we set goals. Like if we're not really intentional, we'll look at this big outcome. And a lot of times that's not 
necessarily fully within our control. And what mm-hmm. our goal should be are the steps that would potentially get mm-hmm. us to that goal. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's recognizing that we're creating goals that are demotivating because mm-hmm. it's like you said, well, this result is maybe a lot more complex that we're trying to get, such as weight loss. It's like you can eat extremely healthy, not see the weight changes. It's what other behaviors are you engaging in and overall, what's more important, the quality of your life. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you can look great and we see it, we're seeing this. I know, um, at least I, from what I've just kind of followed social media with bodybuilders, a lot of them are really talking out about the fact that they've been, they're very unhealthy and that they've had Absolutely. heart attacks because they've been using steroids and whatnot. And mm-hmm. for the longest, and people didn't know this and their people are like hurting themselves, trying to work out like these, like these big bodybuilders that are very popular only to find out, well, they've been on steroids. And so it's like, what's going to be the cost of the steroid use? And then they say, oh, I've, I had a heart attack as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they look healthy and they're far from it. And many of them are starting to come out and say, don't go this route. Like it's not worth it. Like it looks great, but some of them have been like, you know, how many years have I cut off in my life because of the steroid use and just not really eating healthily. I look healthy and physically I'm not. Mm-hmm. And you bringing up bodybuilders and just like, cause that's a sport mm-hmm. and thinking going uh, sports in general, mm-hmm. if the goal is you know, win X amount of games or to win X amount of competition, going back to the demotivating, if you are only focused on that outcome and did not win, you're not, Mm -hmm. you're going to be disappointed. You're going to feel a lot of probably Mm -hmm. uncomfortable emotions, shame. Maybe that self-talk is going to be more critical and you're not going to focus on all the great things you did, all the progress you made. Mm -hmm. The I'm thinking football, Mm -hmm. like you know, maybe the team lost, but you have one of your best games, like you, mm-hmm. whatever position, you, you didn't fumble the ball this game, or if you're the kicker, you mm-hmm. got all the um, mm-hmm. field goal, right? Now that I'm talking out loud, I'm like, do mm-hmm. I sound dumb talking about football? <laughs> um, <laughs> field goal, yeah. I, I think of there was a while back, it was the, the Chiefs and the Rams played and was considered – People are like, the Super Bowl is probably going to be disappointing because they're like, this is probably one of the greatest football games in like the last like 50 to 100 years. And even though it was a high score, it was like great offense, great defense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, and people are just like, well, you know, it's like, oh, something fun about one team. I'm like, why can't we just acknowledge the fact that that was a great game and yeah. either it was going to end in a tie or somebody losing and yeah. somebody lost? It doesn't mean that this other team's terrible because the team, I think that it was the Rams, I think they, they end up going to the Super Bowl that year, I think, and losing. It was like, still, that was one of the greatest. Like those athletes are probably going to remember that game more than the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. just because it was like they all performed so well. And it's like, yeah. well, somebody lost, but it's like we can't just throw it out. out. And it's like, you ha- in order to win, you got to play your best. And Absolutely. if you play your best, you also need to accept that there's a possibility you play the greatest game on earth, and it can because the refs make a bad call, you lose or. It was all great calls by the rest. Still, the other team was just a little bit better on that mm-hmm. one play, and that made a difference. Mm-hmm. It does not dis, you know, two things can be true. I, yep, uh, I schema like therapy is my theoretical <laughs> orientation. Is, okay, with that, I use a lot of CBT. Yeah, and so big thing, CBT and schema therapy, two things can be true, or two Absolutely. or more things can be true. You can play great and still lose. Absolutely, I love that you brought that up. Um, so another area I wanted to ask you about with regard to sports psychology is this concept of mental skills training. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what that 
is. Yeah. So this might get a little controversial. Okay. So you have people who are, so there was a performance enhancement, uh, mental skills training. There are people who they want to be maybe sports psychologists, but they don't have any clinical training. And so they can only focus on the skill enhancement. So it's like using mental skills, self-talk to really improve one's performance. So mental skills training is just another way of saying performance enhancement. If you, it's addressing it from a mental aspect, none all the same. And so it's like, well, if I provide mental skills training on self-talk or focusing, then if people improve that, they're probably going to play better, be able to get better into the zone. And that is accurate. And it's kind of a thing where it's like, you can't, there's so much you can't do if you don't have a license as a clinician, Mm -hmm. let alone the sports psych training. And so it's kind of like, well, how do I get in to provide performance enhancement skills uh, uh, from a mental health aspect or from a mental training aspect without providing mental health services? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of like, I realized, of course, getting licensed and everything is that they're, you know, they have to kind of focus more on the mental skills training uh, for performance enhancement because they end up in a very dicey area where they're possibly providing psychoeducation. And if you were doing that for, was it remuneration? I always forget how to pronounce the word, but for basically for money. Yeah. yeah, It's then you're practicing without a license in most states and what you're doing. And so it's like they're, they have to be in a very fine area. And it's like mental skills training is, I think, great for many different aspects of life. Um, I think of like, you know, teachers when they have kids who struggle with Mm self-regulating, well, mental skills training of like, hey, when you feel really hot, you're probably angry. Take some deep breaths. Like that's a a general tool that they can provide. But when you start providing it under services, you end up in a gray area of, well, what if someone's saying, hey, well, I get, I keep getting these arguments with my coaches and it's like, is you don't have a scope. Is that something you should really be, you know, you're in this gray area. So um, I think with that, for even clinicians, they'll talk about mental skills training to denote the fact that they actually have training in sports psychology in some way to work with athletes because it is not a, uh, forgot the term, but like not a, focus area like clinical psych, neuropsych, geriatric psychology. It is a proficiency area though. So ethically, a person who is working with athletes um, under the guise of like providing psychological services targeted towards athletes should have some training still in sports psychology psychology. uh, to demonstrate competency. But what happens is some people just like working with athletes and then they say, oh, I can provide sports psych services. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize they're acting unethically if they do that, because it's just like Jero psych. I can't go work in a hospital saying I provide geriatric psychology services because I don't have enough training to demonstrate competency with that population because depression does not look the same in the elderly as it does a, a young adult. You know, just like even though I have some training with children, I wouldn't go to a children's hospital and apply for a job because depression, psychosis in young children looks very different. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people say, well, technically all kids are psych- like young kids are psychotic because <laughs> they imagine things, but it's like, no, that's no, not yeah. true. Yes. Kids are imaginative and then their psychosis. How do you differentiate the two? 
Do you have the training to do that? And it's yeah. like, well, I've worked with kids and it's like, didn't ask if you work with kids. Do you have the training and the competency to render services that are not harmful to that population? And mm-hmm. so there's a big thing with sports psychology of it being very protective because unfortunately people are taking jobs in athletic departments with no understanding of the historical aspects of, of sport and from a clinical perspective, from a social perspective. And so then they can't fully address things. So, you know, you think about it from uh, a multicultural standpoint, if you have, if you're working with a young woman, that's a gymnast, the the ways in which you're going to work with her, certain things might be fundamentally different than a football player because mm-hmm. of the historic impact of how women are supposed to carry themselves, uh, the constant attention that women have on their body, that's a lot of pressure that can bring up for an athlete and then bring into the sport where maybe weigh-ins and stuff like that are are really important. Or if they have, unfortunately, a really unhealthy and toxic coach who's very critical of their female athletes, that becomes a big thing too. And so now you have to work on, are we working with possible disorder eating? And if Mm -hmm. you don't have any training eating disorders, well, when do you refer out? When do you get wraparound services? But if you don't know how to look for those things front, uh, and talk about them from a multicultural perspective with their athletes, you might end up doing harm. And and then it's kind of like, well, oh, I thought you were a sports cop. It's like, no, I just like working with athletes. It's yeah. like, I didn't know that. So no, I got to get off my soapbox on that one. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate that because I had no idea because this mm-hmm. is not an area of interest or expertise mm-hmm. of mine. But it it makes a lot of sense. And I like how you said, like, there's a difference between someone who just enjoys working with athletes versus someone who is trained in Mm -hmm. sports psychology, because you might like working with athletes, but it's more on maybe general anxiety, depression, and Mm -hmm. they happen to be athletes versus intentionally seeking out related to like, yeah, mental skills Mm -hmm. training, um, performance enhancement, how to assess Mm -hmm those things. Just like, I mean, I'll use an example of me. So I say I'm a pediatric psychologist because I work in a hospital and I have special training Mm. in medical illness in addition to like how childhood Mm -hmm. um, mental health disorders present. It is different Mm -hmm. from a child psychologist that doesn't have that medical Mm -hmm. training. So there could be a child psychologist that likes to work with children who have chronic illness, but if they don't have mm-hmm. training in that chronic illness mm-hmm. or or just in medical illness in general it yeah they could do more harm like you were saying mm-hmm. yeah because so I, I, I remember because i've worked just with my own experiences and just some of the cases i've had it's like like you said if you have a child who has a severe illness and parents of course have to maybe focus more on that one child as a result of that those other children might feel like they're losing a parent or neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, I could, as, if a, a psychologist who just likes working with children is like, well, how do you navigate the necessity that and both of your, the parents do have to give more attention. That doesn't mean that they don't care about yeah. you. And it's like also helping the family recognize like, Hey, you also need to focus on your other children too, in some way, or have to maybe kind of divide and conquer one parent mm-hmm. stage while the other parent, does a lot more with the children and they switch and make sure they're active about that because the experience for people with uh, a child with disabilities that parents can't always, all, both parents can always go at everything. Mm-hmm. One parent's going to have to stay home mm-hmm. unless they yeah. find somebody, but then that sibling's not there. So then 
that nuclear family that I that I'm thinking of from like a kinetic family drawing when they draw like their ideal family. Well, that doesn't get to actually happen in reality. And that could be very difficult for children. You know, they wreck, there's a sense of loss there. And so, um, yeah, so, and it can be very similar. You know, how do you help an athlete navigate a toxic coach and an injury, mm-hmm. you know, or d- difficulties with their teammates? Because one of the things that comes up that people don't discuss is, well, what do you do if you have teammates that are dating and now there's an issue because they break up? Oh, Good point. Yeah. Not something I had considered. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it does happen. But <laughs> if you don't know how to, you know, um, you know, and whether it's a co-ed team or not a co-ed team, yeah. if it's not a co-ed team, the LGBTQ factors, like you have to be yeah. mindful of that. Um, because then, I mean, there's, I've seen situations where people end up getting out in that process as a result of that. Oh, and then gosh, it's like, there's yeah. that damage of it and don't, you know, well, and now we have the social media aspect of it and it's just, it can get very, very dicey, very quickly to say the least. Oh, absolutely. So kind of shifting gears. Um, so we've talked a lot about sports psychology, but another area of your expertise is ADHD and learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. I've done mm-hmm. a few episodes on ADHD. I don't actually think I've done an episode mm-hmm. on learning disabilities, but for anybody listening that might be not familiar with either. Could you just give a brief kind of mm-hmm. overview or definition of what ADHD is and what learning disabilities are? Yeah. So ADHD is a, a well, both of uh, ADHD and learning disabilities are uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. ADHD is more so considered an executive functioning disorder. Mm-hmm. So people might struggle with attention. Um, you know, maybe they have difficulties being able to focus on a task at hand and, and ignore irrelevant task cues. Uh, difficulties with motivation and procrastination, just implicit organization is like, I should, you know, it's like, I'm going to make my lunch for the week. However, most people think about doing that the night before, but a person with ADHD might wait until like the morning, but they don't get up early enough. And then it's like, they have to rush. And now they have to go buy lunch again, despite having all the stuff they need to do. So it's like that kind of implicit planning they may struggle with Um, difficulties with impulsivity. So they, act without thinking and they say that thing is like i didn't even think about not saying that i just said it uh let alone inhibition which is i probably shouldn't say this i'm gonna say it and it's like oh i knew i shouldn't have said that um as well as just hyperactivity um and just what that could look like in adults versus a child um adults can still be hyperactive and then you have the different impacts from that learning disabilities is where a person you know they're of uh, of at least average intelligence. However, their achievement is far below their what's expected of their age and of their IQ. And oftentimes people who have learned disabilities will think that they're not smart mm-hmm. and they're not familiar with the criteria. It's like, actually, you probably are because in order to meet the criteria, we need to know that it's not due to some other type of cognitive impairment. Um, and so I think learning disability is something that oftentimes... Um, people face a lot of ableism, like it's still okay to make fun of people for uh, their difficulties with math or the difficulties reading. What a lot of people don't realize is that there's a version, there's dyslexia, which is a global term for various 
um, reading challenges that a person has, but there's also dyscalculia, which is a global term for multiple deficits in uh, uh, math calculation and computation that a person can experience. So maybe someone does great with addition, but then when it comes to multiplication, is that's that's where they struggle the most and so um but then that could be you know you start trying to do your taxes that could be very difficult mm-hmm. if you struggle with that and other mm-hmm. things so um but they haven't despite whatever uh ways of getting some tutoring and whatnot they just can't close that gap for their intelligence and their age and also maybe their level of overall education mm-hmm. i appreciate you talking about the fact that a lot of individuals with learning disabilities think they're not smart. I used to do a lot of ADHD and learning disability evaluations um, before I switched to my current role. And I can remember so many like feedback sessions, like giving going through the evaluation with a parent and them talking about how like my kid has always thought he or she was just not smart. But mm-hmm. now we have data to show like, no, they have a uh, reading disability, specifically reading comprehension. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're not smart. Their IQ actually says they are of average mm-hmm. or above average intelligence, but their reading level is way below that. And mm-hmm. what I have found, I'm sure you can talk about this more, when kids, the the American school system is set up to teach the quote unquote average kid, whatever that mm-hmm. means. So if a kid is struggling to, you know, do math or to comprehend reading, they're going to check out because it's mm-hmm. like, this is so hard. I feel mm. dumb. I'm not smart. And then either they could start getting in trouble if they're acting out more, they're checking mm. out or they're doing worse because now they're really not retaining the information because they've told going back to self-talk i guess it ties into your sports psychology negative self-talk well i'm not even going to try because i'm not smart Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the thing i end up loving about sports psych that is tied into so much in the other aspects um because uh one of the things i realized is that we don't talk about the developmental impact of ADHD and learning disabilities. Um, And it also even helps with like relationships, like in communication, because if a coach or a parent talks to a student athlete a certain way, and it's like, then they're carrying that. And it's kind of like, almost like a fan, like a sports very much is like a family systems perspective, because it's like, you know, the coach is doing this and all the athletes are anxious because they don't know how coach is going to be today. But going back, I, you know, I tell people like, you know, think about like when you put like a toddler, because I, I think they're toddlers when they start like T-ball and they can't hit the ball. Like, what does a kid tend to do when they can't hit the ball? What do they say to themselves or yeah, and out loud typically with their self-talk? Uh, I, I stink. I'm trying to think what like a little kid say. I can't or, do or, it. <laughs> yeah. Or anything, anything that they're trying to like do. And like, um, you know, if you're trying to teach them how to do something and they're struggling with it, like how do they tend to respond with whatever it may be? You know, it could be, uh, yeah, I just use T-ball cause I just remember seeing a very, uh, salient video in my mind about this. Cause this kid had this huge breakdown and the parent had to go over and be like, it's okay. Like, yeah. and comfort them just to try. Cause they were so afraid of failing mm-hmm. or they had already failed a couple of times. And it's like, so can you think of like uh, in your work with kids and whatnot and fans, like, have you seen that where a kid breaks down that they're too afraid to even attempt something because of the thoughts going through their mind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I see that mm-hmm. with 
um, academics a lot, even though I'm not in a school setting. I uh, even like friendships. That that's actually a, a really um, good one. Like they want to have friends, but they're scared of initiating a conversation because <laughs> they have this self perception that they're weird or they're not going to know what to say or kids are going to be mean. So they just are like, I'm not even going to mm-hmm. try to, to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. And then if you think about it, well, what happens when there is an actual deficit that becomes more and more visible in the grade system? Because when you start getting a second grade and they, they do those games with who can do a uh, calculation the fastest, fastest and yeah. somebody's consistently not able to keep up or it's taking them longer to do things and everyone else is done, but then they don't get to go to recess because they didn't finish their assignment like the other kids did. And then it gets builds and builds and builds. And there's so much more evidence than it's for kids with reading disabilities, especially it's we'll read out loud to the class. Mm -hmm. And now, (laughs) and then people, yep. People start to laugh or the teachers give feedback because they think the student is just lazy. And so now there's, there's deficits. And then, um, we don't talk about that social impact. So if you think about mm-hmm. it from uh, Erickson's psychosocial stages of development, you know, I had to, I always forget off the top of my head, but like, you know, young kids are building hope, they're building will and purpose, um, competencies like seven to 11, and they start to realize, Ooh, I'm not good at this. Oh, mm-hmm. Hey, you go read in front of everybody. And it's like, um, that's not my strong suit. And now it's like, now they feel incompetent. And then going through life, you know, they've with the with the social aspect is like they've just failed a critical stage. And it's only probably going to get worse because now grades become more and more important as they get to middle school, high school. And they can't do this thing. And like you mentioned, well, then they start to hate school and then they don't want to go to school. They start to try to cope in other ways that may be unhelpful or let alone maladaptive. And so it's it's you know, that's the impact. And then, you know, I work in a college uh, counseling center. So then imagine a kid coming to school with a disability and how many, you know, they don't, people don't really talk about having a disability in school yeah. and they go to their professors and professors think you're just not trying hard enough or I don't want to give you accommodations despite what the law says. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I, uh, that I, I don't have a learning disability, but I did have accommodations in college for anxiety. And I had a professor say, I don't, I don't give accommodations. And I was like, it's literally the law. Like I have like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that one mm-hmm. hit, hit okay. a little home <laughs> for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've worked with med students who, and you would think med programs would be accommodating. They're not. A lot of them are not. And it's very toxic, like how they will talk to students who um, have disabilities and whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's very, pro- and it's like, they can still be a great doctor. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's just, they can't take them. They have to use a calculator. Like what's the issue here? Like they yeah. still do a great job. It's like, they don't have to do the mental math. And it's like, that's not required of their job in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, but it, it's, it's a thing where it's like, um, so the reason I brought uh, Erickson's psychosocial state is I think of it in terms of self-efficacy. How do you have self-efficacy when your innate ability is impaired for some reason, mm-hmm. you don't develop it. And then those other psychosocial stages, like you're not going to feel competent. You're always going to have this issue of, well, can I do this thing unless I can get yep. it completely away from it? And I think that's, 
you know, and just the jokes that people make. Um, so I have this, I have dyscalculia and I've had even other psychologists who knew I had a learning or a learning disability where I'm trying to do the math and I'm like, uh, carry the one. And they're like, it's eight. How, why, how are you? Not? And it's like, I have a disability. And they're like, uh, oh, uh, and I'm like, yeah, but thanks for, it's like, I, I know it's easy for you. It's not easy for yeah. me. But. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I, I think, um, and with ADHD, um, it's kind of a similar thing because there's people don't talk about the social aspect. Mm-hmm. They, cause you know, ADHD, which I do agree with uh, being looked at as a performance disorder, people focus about it in terms of academics yeah. and maybe work, but not socially. Um, if you think about the differential diagnosis, uh, for ADHD, narcissistic personality disorder, uh, was it, um, uh, what's the one I always forget off the top of my head. Um, uh, antisocial personality disorder. So if you have ADHD, imagine everyone thinking that you're narcissistic because you will cut people off with talking mm-hmm. and then you internalize that. And I've had clients who come in cause they, for some reason did some type of online quiz that has no validity. And they're like, I think I'm an anti uh, I'm a psychopath or I'm narcissist. And I'm like, you have ADHD, right? And I'm like, yeah. So is it you, you talk about yourself because you talk without thinking? They're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, and like, oh, that makes sense. But they still think, well, what if I have a narcissist? I'm like, yeah. you're not a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. You just have ADHD. You wouldn't but, be coming I, to therapy. But that's the hard part. If you thought you were a narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've had to say that to somebody. I was like, because you don't think everything's fine. You have that awareness. You just struggle yeah. with it in the moment. It's like, yeah. you because you act without thinking. But I was like, a narcissist. And it's everyone else's issue. They they really don't, you know. And it, so I having to explain that of you know these differential diagnoses, um, you know, understandably so. However, if those are the if that's the differential diagnosis, then what are lay people probably going to think about a person who keeps interrupting on accident or has poor time management? It's like, well, you don't care about my time, and it's like, yeah, no, uh, I don't plan things well. So a 10 minute drive to me thinking I got to leave in 10 minutes. Like I believe in got to be there at nine. I'll leave at eight 50. I'll be there on time. And it's like, but how long does it take for you to get to your car? Let them get dressed in the morning. It's like, mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. It's a 10 minute yep. walk from my car to the building. Yep. Or, and so, then I'm, yes. you know, with ADHD, like forgetfulness loses things frequently. Mm-hmm. So going off that example, mm-hmm. do you also know where your keys are did you grab everything mm-hmm. before getting out the door did you have to go back yeah. to grab something like all that extra time yeah or i you forget to t- uh, text people back mm-hmm. oh but you really don't care about me because i called you and you never called back or you said you would and it's like oh i forgot well you always forget when i have adhd i forget yeah it's like yeah oh that's if you wanted to you would and it's like i want to and i tried and i forgot and it's like, yep. so we don't talk about that part. And it seems like, well, they don't care. Um, especially you got to think like if a person has ADHD and they are forgetful and whatnot, well, how does that impact their romantic relationships and friendships? Mm-hmm. And oh, if absolutely. someone, their person with ADHD is in a relationship with a person who maybe has a lot of anxiety or high insecurities, then those, that a lot of classes there. And it's like, yep. Hey, we all just need to be empathic. You have anxiety, you have ADHD. So we might end up with some clashes at times, but those things don't get talked about. And so then it gets internalized. And then, you know, there's no compassion versus, hey, I struggle with this. How can you help me not have this negative impact on you? Because it's 
you know, what I'm doing isn't okay and I'm not trying to do it. How do we work together? And I think that's the part that often that compassion piece really just isn't talked about when it comes to, I think, mental health as a whole. Yeah, I agree. And I love that you highlighted not just like academic settings. And I know like I kind of introduced that, you know, kids don't like school or things like that. I mean, we didn't explicitly say this, but one academic thing I think about Mm -hmm. a lot with ADHD, especially the hyperactive impulsive subtype Mm -hmm. is getting in trouble, being labeled as the bad kid. Okay. That's not going to make them want to um, go to school either, Mm -hmm. but all these other aspects, because we think learning disability, oh, it's only going to impact you when you're in a learning setting, Mm -hmm. but that is not Mm -hmm. the case at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Are there any other kind of psychosocial impacts of ADHD Mm -hmm. or learning disabilities, whether in the academic setting outside that you Mm -hmm. really want to highlight that Mm -hmm. you feel like aren't talked about as much? Well, I think, uh, I think it's more than fair to bring up the academic setting for kids because that doesn't just Mm -hmm. mean, because the academic setting is also one of their prime social areas. And so it's, and if you think about most of the research that says like, well, who tends to be the popular kids is the kids are really good students. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a kid who, is capable, but is either performing inconsistently because of a disability, you know, well, then how does that impact them? But then they start to get shunned because of social aspects, let alone the performance. So it's all tied together. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the K through 12 system can have such a huge impact on a person's functioning. A person can have the worst home life and school can be their safe haven that helps them get to a healthy path and know, hey, I can it can help them have hope because they go to school and they feel cared for, even if people don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's like I've had clients say school is the only place that I felt safe. Yep. And it's like, well, they got that security. Well, if they have if they have any other challenges and they're not getting that that they got the best home life in the world and they hate going to school where they're at a certain point, they're spending more time at school from kindergarten through 12th grade than they are at home with their parents. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. parents can do the best. It's like, well, your kids are being bullied. What's the yeah. cycle, social, mental health aspect of that? So, Absolutely. Um, so I, a lot of it does tie around school, not the academics though. And so it's, yeah. it's like, you at some point you can't, you know, you can separate them in a way still they're also integrated in a lot of ways. And so um, I think um, outside of that, um, I think a, a big piece of it is um, just the social aspect and like, especially with ADHD, like relationships. Yep. Um, I've had a lot of clients really think that they weren't good enough or something like that because of their ADHD, uh, because they can kind of take over in a conversation and it's teaching them that, hey, you know what? you have ADHD, that means maybe you might say or do things or whatever that aren't okay. How do you encourage people to help you with that? So that way, you know, it's recognized, like, I don't want to do this and I need support with it. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and so it was really just understanding that communication goes a long way um, and helping people help you help yourself because then it helps relationship. Um, And it's just like, you know, I think it's a big difference of a person it's like, I might do something. And if you to give me some feedback to know oh, I'm doing that thing again, I can be receptive and be like, oh, okay, I don't need to be defensive. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, you know, versus, well, I just get defensive. I don't really care. It's like, it's not that I don't care. Thing is like, I'm trying. Yep. I struggle with this and I need some support. 
while also, and I think just having those conversations can help the partner who doesn't have AC not feel exhausted and worn out or worse, personalized things of like, well, you just don't care um, X, Y, Z because you don't have this, because they, maybe they don't have this foresight to think, oh, let me do this to help my partner mm-hmm. out. They have to be kind of told. And it's like, I don't mind doing it. I do have yeah. to be told. And it's like, okay, I get you don't want to be told, like you don't have to tell somebody to do something. That's what they need though. And they're asking yeah. you to, and they're more than happy. But some people get caught up with the fact of, well, I have to ask. That means you don't care. And it's like, no, that's two things can be true. They can care and need to be told. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The thing that keeps coming up for me as you're talking about all these impacts and, you know, you mentioned bullying and, you know, feeling not good enough and things like that. If you're internalizing all these feelings, so you may have a diagnosis of ADHD and or a learning disability. You already highlighted neurodevelopmental disabilities. Then you're getting all these messages that, you're not mm-hmm. good enough. You're not smart enough. People don't like you. Oh, I struggle in social relationships. So something might be wrong with me. In turn, probably results in increased feelings of depression, anxiety, and kind of spiral into more mental health mm-hmm. concerns that may have not mm-hmm. been there if these individuals got the proper support, both mm-hmm. in academic work settings, but also just from people in, in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, I remember going to, um, uh, like a continuing education seminar during my internship. And it was a psychologist from who works for Harvard and he has ADHD. And I think he said his wife might too. And his kid does. Um, but one of the things he talked about was that if you don't treat the ADHD, if a person has depression and anxiety as well, then the depression and anxiety is probably not going to get better because they can't manage because the ADHD is not managed and they can't, how they're going to manage anything else or the yeah. difficulties that are causing depression, anxiety might be due to the ADHD. So it's important to treat the ADHD and it doesn't have to be medication. It could just be, you know, CBT and other methods yeah. and whatnot. Um, and I think another thing you kind of touched on a little bit is, you know, the stigma piece is that for ADHD, is it can be difficult because everyone's like, Oh, well, everybody has a little bit of ADHD or oh, that's yeah. just overly diagnosed. And it's like, no, I know there's issues with overdiagnosis of ADHD medications, and two things can be true. It can be overdiagnosed while still being underdiagnosed, and people who actually have ADHD, have and that's yeah. the hard part, and that's why we have the medication shortages right now. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so I think working on those things from um, again an integrated perspective um, goes a long way because I know I, I think I made a post about this. And I think you may have too. People don't realize by definition, the field of psychology is a holistic field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what people think holistic means. I'm like, that's not what that word means though. So. No, holistic <laughs> is one of those pop psychology terms that mm-hmm. has gotten misconstrued and things, but yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Andre, I have loved this conversation. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity if there was anything I haven't asked you about, we haven't touched on that you want to mention before we wrap up. I think a big thing to touch on uh, for a lot of different aspects of life is uh, the communication piece. So a big thing Mm -hmm. I work oftentimes with my clients on is recognizing when they have conversations with people, um, there are things that we can do that can provoke defensiveness in a person. And if we 
do that, then they're going to shut down. And there's ways in which we can see, oh, this person's defensive. Let me engage in more supportive communication to lower their defensiveness. And then things go a long way. Um, I think I had a, I remember I had a client where it was probably one of the most profound things I had heard. Uh, this client told a, a, a relative, uh, sometimes your neutrality is hurtful because they would intentionally take this neutral stance. Like, well, it is what it is, or it doesn't matter. And they're like, I'm coming for you for support and you take yeah. this neutral stance to just dismiss it all. It's like, that's hurtful. I was like, I felt personally attacked because I thought of all the times I've done that in my life. And I was just like, that was good. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I need a moment to sit through that. And, and that. so um, it was just a powerful moment because I, I kind of gave her this handout that described like defensive behavior, defensive mm-hmm. communication styles versus supportive. And so when they kind of, you know, they had thought through it clearly, they, and they recognized that moment and said that, and it was kind of like, I, the, I had the reaction of the relative that they said that to, which was like, they couldn't say anything. They just had to leave the room. Cause it was like, I I'm being attacked. And it's like, well, actually I'm not being attacked. Yeah. They just communicated how they felt. And it was yeah. very articulate. And so I think still like, I laugh about it. Uh, cause my client felt bad. Cause they thought like, I really felt attacked by that. It was like, <laughs> I did not by you. It was just such a profound thing because it's like, oh, well, you know, and it's like we kind of will feign the stoicism at times to just like really act like something doesn't matter. And I get we're doing that for ourselves. And we have to think about what does that communicate to that other person who's trying to share something with us? And we're just like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So don't worry about it. And it's like that that that, that's not helpful. And so, yeah, so I, I just. I always try to share that because it was just, it's still, I get very activated just thinking about it because it was such a powerful thing. <laughs> no, I love that. I'm going to keep it in the back of my mind and use it. So, well, Dre, thank you so much for coming on, talking, sharing your knowledge and expertise. The last thing I always ask my guests is where can people connect with you? And I'll put all your links in the show notes. You can find me on Instagram. It's Dr. Dre2421. Apparently, there's another famous Dr. Dre, but I'm not really sure if he's a doctor or not. But anywho, <laughs> that one was already taken. Um, TikTok, I believe, is the same. Uh, Dr. Dre as well. And then YouTube, there is a Dr. Dre. I think it's 2421 as well. I try to keep it consistent on all of them. But the main mm-hmm. thing I really use is Instagram and TikTok. The YouTube is kind of like, I'm going to do it next week. And it's my ADHD. He's like, I'll do it the <laughs> I was week about after. To say, ADHD, right? We just talked about Yeah. It. And it's like, yeah, we'll start it next month. And it's like, let's buy this other stuff. And it's like, do I need to buy anything else to start? It's like, no, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> we'll start it next week. We'll yeah. wait. To, and so that's been my thing. But eventually I'm going to get started on there uh, in okay. a little bit. So I have like one video posted, but I'm going to start trying to cross post a little bit on there. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will put all your links in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much for coming on. And I learned a ton about sports psychology, I have to say. So I know uh, the listeners will too. And I just appreciate your time. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. And thank you, the listeners, for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk. And I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. 
If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.